most powerful empires over the last 500 years and the last three reserve currencies it took me through the rise and decline of the Dutch Empire and the Gilder the British Empire and the pound the rise and early decline in the United States Empire and the dollar and the decline and rise of the Chinese Empire and its currencies as well as the rise and decline of the Spanish German French, Indian, Japanese, Russian, and Ottoman empires. Yeah, I think that the reserve currency regime tends to shift slower than the great power regime because I think a lot of the time he credits the Dutch Empire for being the most powerful was, and I think actually the dominant era of the French empires like basically and I think that um, they underestimate actually the strength of the Spanish and the French empires from a historical perspective and but generally he's right, right about how these cycles are and I think he also overestimates China but we're, gonna, we're elaborating on that throughout this video here and I think also underestimates German power to a certain degree. I think Germany was a lot closer to the United States in terms of relative peak of political dominance than being given credit for. And same with the Japanese, I think were quite a bit stronger too. Along with their significant conflicts, as measured in this chart, to understand China's patterns better, I also studied the rise and fall of Chinese dynasties and their monies back to the year 600. I think a lot of why China was as dominant as they were in the medieval times was because in the older time, manpower is a lot more valuable than it is today. I think in general, people, when they think about geopolitics and who are the dominant countries, they always go to the countries with the largest population they are going to be the future. Whether it's China, the US, uh, in, or India. Or, but I think in an age of increased technology, I don't that the number of people matters less than it used to for a number of reasons. First, uh, there's the whole need to employ, feed, and shelter a lot of these people. And when you have a more globalized economy, uh, one that allows internet and technology to magnify the power of the most productive and successful individuals, and you have automation software and machines to replace the work of a lot of those um, previously low and mid-skilled labor jobs and even some high-skilled jobs then having a bunch of young men shifts from an asset to a liability because if you can't employ these people in a status that allows them to live comfortably and have enough resources that they can afford to support themselves and 
support a family or at least be attractive enough to a potential spouse to want to marry them and have a family together, then you got issues. And this is what happened in the Arab Spring was when you had a, a very, relatively highly educated population but not enough jobs for all these college educated people. And if you have a society like that that has an excess level of educated young people, then you're just going to have a society of without the jobs and the, the comfortable standard of living to place them in for all the work they've done in their youth. The resentment from underemployment is the ripe ground for revolutions. And yeah, that's what I think is going to be a problem long term. It's not looking that way now. You see the ideas of labor shortages. But what I think is different in the future and was also applied to the past pre-pandemic was that now you have a large chunk of the population given a lot of the boomers created this as you see in like the demographic um, pyramids this giant bulge of different countries baby booms that are slightly different periods of time in the US, China, Japan, etc. that during those times once that bubble just comes out of the system and normalizes the demographic pyramids around the world you're gonna all of a sudden have a lot less demand and the same amount of supply of workers like right now the demand remains high because all these retirees who are no longer working still demand the pretty much the same amount of goods and services they did when they were working but there's less people to provide those services or manufacture the goods who are still working and so that was what creates a temporary labor shortage but as that again the um, the demographic pyramid just apes its way and tapers off with the turning of the boomer generation and the equivalents in other countries then this idea of having people have an asset especially now with technology affecting the future of the labor curve may not become a liability. Instead of quantity of people being your asset, it's the quality of people that become your asset. And quality, I mean, is that does your country foster an environment to create the superstar innovators, the people who are going to build businesses or invent new technologies or be able to leverage um, the current institutional frameworks to be the most productive out there in the world of, the, of business and manufacturing various goods and services people need. Uh, I think that's a product of education systems. It's a product of cultural values and what countries reward the right type of behavior to adjust to a more dynamic and disrupting and entrepreneurial world that I think we're going to have in the future. And that doesn't always correlate just having more. More people who are trained the wrong way is not better than less people who are trained the right way or more people in an environment that favors dynamism is better than I mean less people in an environment that favors dynamism is better than more people in an environment that doesn't and also what countries are going to be able to adopt robotics the best like is if you can build a strong core of automation and 
proprietary robotics to replace a lot of military capability that smaller countries can use the, um, their innovative ability and their level of technology to make up for lack of raw numbers. I mean, this is what happened in the 19th century with European powers had much more innovative technology than the rest of the world. And because of that, especially with weapons, more advanced weapons technology and more advanced medical technology, they were able to dominate the world. Whatever part of the, whatever power in the future is able to do the same thing in the, when it comes to things such as space, biotech, and robotics and other things will become, I think, dominant no matter how low their population was. In fact, the Dutch, the reason why they're always been a tiny country, where the reserve currency for the stretch that they were was not because they had more people than anybody else or raw manpower, which has been the success for countries such as China historically. It's because they were the ones to really invent modern capitalism and modern global trade networks. Uh, Dutch were the first to come up with the stock market in a meaningful way. They were also the ones to have really just modern have the most mo the first one to develop modern ways to raise capital and to minimize risk of international trade so the to to make themselves wealthier and have their currency and their network more trusted and more used than other countries in the world back to what ray has to say now because looking at all these measures at once can be confusing, I'll focus on the four most important ones, the Dutch, British, US, and Chinese. You'll quickly notice the pattern. Now let's simplify the form a bit. As you can see, they transpired in overlapping cycles that lasted about 250 years, with 10 to 20 year transition periods between them. Typically, these transitions have been periods of great conflict because leading powers don't decline without a fight. So how am I... Yeah, it goes back to the Thucydides trap and the generational dynamics idea. Um, the 250-year mark, I don't think, is entirely correct in terms of... There's been a lot of evolution and revolution within that period. Like, the United States has not even been around for 250 years. And so I don't think it's been part of the same trajectory, the rise and fall the whole time. There were down periods in the United States, the most notable one being the tragic Civil War from 1861 to 1865 and the political degeneration from, say, like the 1820 Missouri Compromise to the start of the Civil War in 1861 that even though the country was expanding territorially, it was weakening in terms of the quality of its political institutions and being just derailed by the slavery issue and not being able to address that peacefully. And Britain had its issues. They had in that 250-year period, the Napoleonic Wars were won, and France was a dominant power for some of that time as well. And so I think that that's what he's covering up here is that these are not just like straight parabolas, but yeah, he's generally right on a lot of this stuff. My measuring an empire's power. 
In this study, I used eight metrics. Each country's measure of total power is derived by averaging them together. They are education, inventiveness and technology development, competitiveness in global markets, economic output, share of world trade, military strength, the power of their financial center for capital markets, and the strength of their currency as a reserve currency. I think those are fair metrics to measure a relative power. Um, and if you are going to claim that China is going to be the dominant world power, they have to be leading in at least five of the eight of those categories with by 2050. And so let's go through them. Education. Uh, U.S. is still the dominant country for education. And I do not really see that changing unless if education just comes completely internet-based and China somehow becomes the dominant provider of online education that people use around the world. I think there's some issues of why China will not be the dominant leader in education. One, language. They have a, there's a, Mandarin is a very hard language to learn. In fact, statistically, it's probably the hardest language to learn in the world for non-native speakers. And so, if you want to have be the standard of education and academia, it's going to be hard for to count in China unless if China, all of China's academic elites become fluent English speakers. And China has a lot more fluent English speakers as a percentage of its population than Westerners have fluent Chinese speakers. So China understands this, and they have made English learning especially the elites in that country, a very important part of what they do. Uh, the second reason also is just institutional credibility. Uh, Chinese universities, really, the, none of the current academic universities have been around since uh, before the revolution. Uh, you don't really see uh, foreigners wanting to study in China in mass, whereas you see plenty of Chinese students wanting to go to American universities, uh, not just because of academic quality, but also because of the prestige of an American decree. And that, I, I think America is still leading the way. If you look at the top universities and world rankings, well over 80% of them are American, with the remainder of ones being mostly schools in Britain and EU, uh, China is nowhere close on that. You can argue that China's, this is the argument here, is that China educates more engineers every year than the U.S.'s total college graduates. That is true. China will have more college graduates than America has population. Both of those are true. But that's just a law of large number thing again. Of course, China has more people. So they're always going to have bigger numbers. Uh, so if India, when India passes up China in population in the next 10 years, is that going to make India the dominant world power and have the best education system if they are able to do the same thing 
and just get raw a number of graduates, that doesn't mean anything. Like, first of all, the quality universities and the fact that what are you gonna do? Have the jobs to place them all based on the how the wage scale is in that country and things such as the lying flat movement. I don't know if they do have enough jobs that give the status of an expect standard living expectations of a college degree to the local people. So this so over educating their people is actually could be a Molotov cocktail for your country if you're not careful. Generally though I think they have some work to do on the education category. Trade, this is the one I'll give to China. They are more country they are the share of global trade I think has surpassed the United States on absolute level and in terms of number of countries that China is the leading trading partner and I'll put a map up to show you here they have a large lead on the United States who's a distant number two and that's because China has become a hub of low-cost manufacturing uh, throughout the world and a lot of countries have low budgets and need the cheapest possible output. And then just in general, they have a strong comparative advantage. I think that's starting to go away with how much cheaper energy prices are in other parts of the world and the geopolitical imperative for domestic manufacturing, but that's gonna take a while. Innovation and technology. China, surprisingly, is catching up a lot quicker in this innovation and technology front than most people would realize. Uh, in 2020, for the first time, China had more international applications for patents than the United States did, which is the first time any country's been ahead of the United States in over 40 years. Uh, that is a big deal. Uh, China also has its own Silicon Valley infrastructure and a lot of big tech companies to call their own national champions such as Alibaba, JD, Baidu, Didi Chung, etc. However, you got to take that with a grain of salt because a lot of the reason why China has been able to build its own big tech companies is because of a lot of rules and regulations that prevent foreign tech companies from effectively competing, such as minority interests, shareholder rules, um, and then you have IP enforcement being inconsistent depending on whether it's a domestic or a foreign level of intellectual property. You also have, on top of that, the Great Firewall of China and the willingness to cooperate with Chinese government censorship programs, which many Western tech companies are either unwilling to cooperate with or unable to due to national security risks um, from their own countries and things such as CFIUS in the United States and other bodies in other countries that block mergers with Chinese companies for national security purposes. So they've been able to build a lot of their own, and then the language barrier, I think, still has something to do with it. But they've built a lot of their infrastructure because of that. So if you didn't have to just duplicate a lot of what is in other countries due to artificial barriers keeping global competitors out, how big is China's tech? 
how innovative truly is China? I know they prioritize R&D, and China is really good at kind of taking the best of others and reverse engineering it. But what technologies has China really led the way in have been the first mover in that the United States or Japan or South Korea or any of the other countries in the world I did not come up with first. And with the patent question, what are the quality of these patents? What are these patents for necessarily? I'm not an intellectual property lawyer. I'm not really an expert in tech or technological innovation. And if somebody is, I'd like to hear from you and see like really how close is this gap between innovation and tech in China and the US. But I just personally find it hard to believe in a country that is so into um, conformity and whether it's through their historical Confucian values or just the iron fist of the party that runs it. And the lacking of freedom can be a truly innovative place. That's just my personal opinion that is biased by the fact that I'm American. I live in a country that values individual freedom and so I assume that it's hard and it's had a good track record innovating because of the room it gives individual freedom. So I find it hard to believe a country without that basic level of freedom who's going to be able to innovate in the same way. Again, I think that really the biggest limiter to China's potential is the CCP itself. Uh, and I think this is one of the reasons. Military. Um, the U.S. is still the dominant military power. China does not have a deep water navy. They've In their entire history from the medieval days, China has not been able to successfully export power through the seas, which control of the seas is critical if you're going to be a dominant power geopolitically. Uh, the United States still outspends the rest of the world combined in military spending, and that includes China as a distant second. China has more manpower, and their saber-rattling in places such as Taiwan scares a lot of people to believe that they are a dominant military, and they have done some work on hypersonic missiles, so has Russia. But there's not enough evidence out there to suggest that China's military is close to competing with the United States at this point. And they don't really have the other advantage, which I think is an unfortunately earned one, um, is that the U.S. has a lot more veterans with actual expertise in real wartime situations, such as the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, whereas China really lacks that. They haven't really fought in a truly, like, real war since they had their civil war struggles in the late 1940s. Uh, next, I would say competitiveness. This one actually, it depends on what you're competitive in. Like China in manufactured goods has a competitive advantage on a comparative level, especially on lower end items. I think the U.S. still has the absolute advantage in just about every industry in the economy. But trade is not based on absolute advantage. It's based on comparative advantage. And the United States, though, has the comparative advantage in, I think, the things that actually matter for um, maintaining power. That's technology, that's financial services, food, and weaponry. And I think the U.S. is not given enough credit for having the dominance 
in those four fields. Yeah, sure, they've lost the lead in things such as automobile manufacturing to Germany and Japan. They have lost the lower-end electronic and consumer goods to places such as Southeast Asia, China, and Taiwan. But in terms of, uh, of just dominant trade power, I think the United States has still a sufficient competitiveness in the industries that matter. The reason why they have such competitiveness is that one, we have fortunately a very suitable land for growing crops and very advanced and consolidated farming industry. The United States also has, again, a culture of innovation and a trustworthy capital markets to be the go-to place due to financial attractions. Like the city of Miami is effectively the financial center for Latin America, even though it's not in a Latin American country. That shows you how extreme the U.S. financial advantage really is. And that, that goes also to the reserve status of the U.S. dollar helps for that. But we'll get to that later. Um, I think competitiveness in China is mainly driven on cheaper labor. Uh, labor costs are rising in China. In fact, the average Chinese person pretty soon will be, if they're not already, older than the average American. So the demographic crunch is going to hit them first, which is also going to cause labor costs to keep going up in the short term. They also have higher energy costs due to China having to be a net energy importer, whereas the U.S. has a relative abundance in crude oil and natural gas. And so as, with the rise of automation technology and robotics that are powered by electricity, energy as a percentage of manufacturing costs is going to rise, whereas labor is going to fall. And that rewards countries that are more automated and countries that use labor as their primary source of comparative arbitrage are going to get hit. Uh, this is bad for emerging market countries. This is bad for China. Uh, I think that they'll have to find some other way to be competitive. Maybe they have. I mean, if I was China, what I would need to do is I would need to get, my goal is to have the RMB steadily rise and to the point where China can produce all its manufactured goods, but instead of shipping them off to the US or to the EU, instead the Chinese people will be able to afford to buy their own goods. If China can get their consumer society to be robust enough that they can support their own domestic manufacturing, that is a game changer that would be strong in their behalf. Will they be able to do it? is to be seen, but this is one I think actually that China did catch up, but I think it's starting to give ground again. Financial center. The US is still the dominant financial center in the world. The UK, I would arguably be number two still, and that's just because of the importance of the city of London and the fact that the EU is historically not very business friendly or very pro-economic freedom or capital markets relative to the UK and the United States. And UK has been a, not been a power since the 1950s, and they still have the second most important financial center. So I think this is the financial center status is probably going to be the last one the U.S. gives up if they give up any of these. 
the development of the capital markets in the U.S. is just far more advanced. We are leaders in derivatives markets. We are leaders in mo modernization of the mortgage markets and stock markets and bond markets and options. Like, if for example, in the U.S., you could find an options on pretty much any company with more than say a five hundred million dollar market cap. Whereas in most ETFs, whereas in other countries like options markets are very illiquid and usually limited to the top 5% of companies if they even have options markets. And I'm not saying options mar like the depth of your options market is a barometer of strength for a country's financial system, but I think it's just an example that epitomizes the gap between the levels of developedness of the financial system in the United States versus other countries in the world. China's main problem, which is also affects its reserve status, is the fact that it's not a free-floating currency. Uh, you can't just put your money in and expect to take as much as you want out. Uh, there's rules for individuals cannot take out more than fifty thousand R dollars or U.S. dollars worth of RMB per year, and they've seen ways that people try to go around this through such as cryptocurrencies, through junkets in Macau, or literally buying diamonds and putting them check in a, in a flying them all across the ocean, reselling them. If, if you can't, nobody's going to trust you as a financial center or as a reserve currency if you don't have freedom of capital like the Spanish dollar, the Dutch guilder, the British pound, and the US dollar had one thing in common and that was the ability for it to be freely moved and be have value wherever it goes even between two countries that are not doing any business with the reserve empire. And oh, is China anywhere yet? No. Do companies similar to the education system? You see plenty of Chinese students wanting to study at U.S. universities, and now Americans wanting to do so in Chinese universities. And the same thing, I think, with the financial system. You see a lot of American. Um, you'll see a lot of American companies wanting to list on Chinese exchanges, but until very recently, due to um, Again, the Chinese government's rules that prevent certain disclosed financial disclosures. It's the Help Foreign Countries Accountable Act, the Act that was passed in 2020. Chinese companies wanted to list on the NYSE and American exchanges, but not the other way around. And look at immigration patterns. This is another way you could tell about dominance. You see a lot of Americans. Do you see it that they want to live abroad, but do they want to live in China, even pre-pandemic? No. Do you want to see um, a lot of Chinese want to live in the United States of America? Well, not just to go to school, but it's prior to the increased tension between the two countries, it was very popular for wealthy Chinese to send their wives and kids to move to the United States and use the EB-5 visa to have them live here and buy properties in some of the wealthier neighborhoods in gateway cities 
You don't see wealthy Americans buying property in the wealthy suburbs of Shanghai or Beijing or Shenzhen. Even Hong Kong is seeing a net migration outward of Westerners. And in general, you don't really see that many, especially as a percentage of the population, Westerners out moving to Asia, whereas you see a lot of people from Asia wanting to move to the West. And you know how you can tell if China's really ascending is that you start to see the enterprising entrepreneurial people in countries that used to have more economic freedom that do not anymore wanting to move to China. Like if you start to see people from say Western Europe or Latin America or the United States or Canada net outflowing to China and those sit in the cities in the coast of China becoming a lot more uh, diverse in terms of nationality that would be a sign of China becoming a more dominant power because you see people saying hey look I can't have the same opportunities in my home country as I can in China are you really seeing that nowadays no I think the language barrier has something to do with it but when America was on the rise you saw lots of Europeans and people from all over the world really and I'm using Europe as an example because those were the the dominant powers of the world in the 19th century where more of them were moving to America than Americans moving back to Europe and until you see those kind of flows to China or really any other country that's challenging the United States I'm going to question that narrative and then the output is the last one output it depends on how you measure it GDP can be measured on raw GDP or purchasing power parity. The problem with the purchasing power parity is that in theory it's supposed to weigh if everybody had the same cost of living as the United States, what would their output be in terms of actual value, is that that number is subjective and if a country wants to make itself look better than they can, they can artificially lower their cost of living relative to the United States. And so the PPP multiplier will be higher. And China is nowhere close nominally to passing the United States. But in PPP, it looks a lot closer. But I don't know how accurate that PPP multiplier is. On top of that, how big is China's actual GDP? That's the other that's another question here. It's a common in macro circles to question the levels of GDP growth that say China has still been growing at an average of 7% the last decade and 10% plus in the 2000s what if those numbers were half and they were growing at 5% and 3.5 which are still impressive and still would show a massive amount of increases of standard of living and output especially for a country of the size of China. But if you compound that slight difference in growth year over year, that makes the actual economy of China a lot smaller than it is perceived to be as based on the published data. So like, if all these people are somewhat on one side skeptical 
of China reporting honest economic data that they have to use things such as the credit impulse, which I have my video in the description on the credit impulse in the description here. But on the other hand, they take the actual cumulative size of the Chinese economy for granted and it's accurate for what the government claims it to be. You can't have it both ways. Either the growth numbers are correct the whole time and these people who were pitching the idea of slow growth were just fear mongers and liars or on the other side that China's economy is actually much smaller than it is perceived to be. And then there's the other side, the GDP per capita. Like China's GDP per capita is under $10,000 in USD nominally. Um, if you could, if you're on a PPP basis, it's probably about, it's considerably higher. However, when it comes to the US's GDP per capita, it's well over $50,000 per year. And usually a dominant world powers historically are leaders in living standards. They may not have the single highest. So like, look at the PP, the current US dollars, the China GDP per capita is $10,434. Um, where if you look at United States by comparison in current US dollars the GDP per capita in the, the whole world average is 10,918 and in the United States of America it's 63,593 dollars so your average American makes over six times the amount of the average Chinese person and Chinese GB or capita is still lower below the world average. It's really hard to be a dominant world power if on average your country is poorer than the median worker in the entire world. Yeah, I mean, is their GB per capita going to skyrocket to developed world status? I don't think they have to be number one. But they gotta be at least at the same level the OECD, which, but like as I talked about in my Greece video, thirty thousand dollars in the in per per year is the mark that I would say China needs to hit to be taken seriously as a truly developed economy. They would have to triple their living standards within the next thirty years to do that by 2050 and without the rest of the world growing at a pace to still leave them behind the dust. Can that happen? Yes. Will that happen? Probably not unless if China wins a war against the dominant world powers and redistributes the global wealth through conquest and redistribution through a victory in militarily. That's usually what causes transitions historically, but at, given the fact that I think China is only leading in one of the eight um, indicators that Dalio reports to the empire is why my skepticism of that transition is strong. So who do I think will replace it instead? 
I'll explain it after we go through deeper into this series. 